following podcast is brought to you by Robots vs. Dinosaurs. Disclaimer, this podcast is about to spoil several movies from 6 to 20 years old. Lou, read off the list. Today, Robots vs. Dinosaurs will be spoiling for you, the listener, 1899, Dark, Westworld, Alien, Titanic, Beauty and the Beast, Tarzan, Pocahontas, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, Avatar, The Last Airbender, Terminator, Gremlins 2, Star Wars Episode 1, The Phantom Menace, The Orville, and The Iron Giant. Hello and welcome to Robots vs. Dinosaurs, the podcast where we watch a movie and then try to determine which one is cooler. Robots, dinosaurs, or uh, I should have looked this up, uh, um, Montakaya? Montakaya? Montakia? No, that's butter. What's it called? <laughs> <laughs> what are you trying to say? Oh, a tulkoon. Tulkoon, yeah. All right, let me do that again. <laughs> I think you can keep it. Keep it like that. I will, but I'm gonna I'm gonna try again anyway. <laughs> Robots, dinosaurs, or a tulkoon, which is a giant whale. Um, I'm your host, <laughs> giant space whale. I'm your host, Luigi, and with me as always is my co-host. Uh, it's always the person that picks the movie in this. And today, um, I had two people that dragged me to the theater, and I couldn't be more grateful for that. Uh, Ad Seidel and Conrado Falco, welcome back to the show. Hey, hello, hello. Uh, Maybe um, listeners, you, you've definitely heard them on uh, our Matrix coverage from last year. We covered all the Matrix movies. Um, Conrado and I have talked about AI and a few other movies. But uh, why don't y'all tell the listeners what movie we're going to be discussing today? We are talking about Avatar, colon, AP Take It. The Way <laughs> of Water. The Way of Water, directed by James Cameron written by James Cameron and a whole bunch of other people over the course of the last decade, um, starring Sigourney Weaver, Zoe Saldana, Sam Worthington, uh, Stephen Lang. Mm-hmm. Who else? Kate Winslet. Kate Winslet for a few moments. Cliff Edie Curtis. Falco. Edie Falco. Edie Falco. Uh, a bunch of little kids. Jemaine Clement. Mm-hmm. Doing an American accent for some reason. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think that's it for famous people. I think so. I think so. And then, yeah, and then a bunch of other uh, people that do some really great mo- mocap work. Because mm-hmm. um, <laughs> that's the majority of what this is. So, uh, all right. So this is a huge movie. And there, uh, there's a lot of ways to approach um, a movie as big as, as Avatar or like any James Cameron movie, really. Um, one thing that I want to say about it is uh, this is... I, I have. I want to say this up front. I have become a full convert uh, to the to the way of Avatar. Um, the way of water. <laughs> the okay. way of water. The way no, of Avatar. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. I'm gonna let you finish. But I have to say, it has been a heroic undertaking by AB and myself to get Lou Gaudio to come to the theater to watch Avatar with us and convert him into an Avatar head. Because uh, <laughs> yeah, it took like. Well, maybe it wasn't that heroic. It took like a couple of weeks. I was going to say it wasn't that hard, but I do think that <laughs> it, Lou is definitely uh, a non-believer and mm-hmm. is now a believer. That's to be sure. And I'll tell you why. I um, Did y'all recently watch uh, 1899 on Netflix or its predecessor, Dark? No. Maybe that same people. That's the German one? 
Yes. Uh, Dark is a fantastic German, basically a lot of people describe it as like the German Stranger Things. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's it's three seasons of this show that is mind bending. It's amazing time <laughs> travel fiction, sci-fi. Um, it's all in German, but you can watch it with sub, uh, with uh, dubs or subs if you want. It's a fantastic show. And it, it had three seasons. It wrapped up in a very nice, neat little bow. Um, 1899 came out a few months ago. It had a, it was, it was the same people, really amazing first season. It's a, I won't describe it much because it's a mystery box show. And if you're, well, the point I'm driving at is there's no point in watching it because (laughs) the first season ended on an awesome, awesome cliffhanger setting up season two. It answered, you know, it did really landed the plane, like on a mystery box type show, like answered a lot of the season one questions, set up bigger questions for season two. And then they uh, Netflix unceremoniously announced that they ca- they're canceling it, and there's never going to be a season two. Um, so <laughs> sounds like Netflix. All of that to say, I've been burned too many times. And when Avatar one came out in two thousand nine, two thousand ten, I saw it in the theater. I was blown away by the visuals, the best three D I've ever seen, some of the best visual effects I've ever seen. I wasn't, I'll be honest, I wasn't like paying attention much to the story because I didn't feel like there was much. And then I didn't get caught up in any of the Avatar hype because I was always so nervous about another, like an 1899 happening to me. Like I'm going to get really invested. I'm going to get really excited. And they're just going to pull the rug out from under me. So, so it's taken a while for me to want to see another Avatar movie willingly. Um, and also, even just to believe that I'm ever going to get served another one, like, at all. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I'm i really glad that I saw mm. The Way of Water in the theater. I'm really glad I enjoyed it as much as I did. And it inspired me to go back and rewatch Avatar 1. And oh. I have some some revised thoughts about Avatar 1 now. Did you watch um, the theatrical great. cut of the first one, or did you watch the extended cut? I don't know. I wa- I just threw it on Disney Plus, so that I'm okay. assuming that's the theatrical cut. Probably. Yeah. Probably. The extended What's cut is different good. in the. Um. There's you know a little more uh, at the beginning. There's a little more setup, and then there's also famously, um, the like in the sex scene, the moment when the two of them make the bond, as it were, mm-hmm. uh, is only in the extended cut, and it's interesting because everyone thinks they've seen it. I remember when we went to Avatar Two, Conrado. We were talking for the first time. We were talking with some of the people we were with, and all of them were convinced that they had seen that moment, but none of them had seen the extended cut. And I, mm, I was like, but, that, well, "But we have seen that moment in the original theatrical release. Did have that moment? No, it doesn't. This is the thing. It has the sex scene. It does not have the moment when they make the bond with each other in the original in the theatrical original theatrical cut. But however, one important caveat: during uh, Avatar's first theatrical run. The extended cut was released in their run-up to the awards campaign. And so it's possible yeah. that people did go see it again in theaters and no, saw the extended cut. Avi, I don't believe that. Is this like one of those internet things where everybody has the wrong No, it's memory? like the fucking Berenstein, but yeah, the Mandela effect. Exactly. Um, look, I could be totally wrong about I this. Think you, I think you... I want to say that you're wrong, and I actually am going to Google this immediately because I cannot <laughs> believe this. Because I remember... I have I only saw Avatar in the theater once, and I remember seeing them connect. Their, everyone was talking about them connecting their tails, so it has to have been on the thing. I'm telling you, man. Okay, what do you <laughs> call like tail bond sex scene? Yeah, Avatar. Well, their tail thing. I, I mean, I had it a moment ago. It has a name. Uh, there's a word for it, and they call it the bond. I don't know what they were. Oh, is it Sahelu or something? 
the, like the act, yeah, the, the, act the sexual the event, um, if this was the Orville. Uh, yeah, no, that does, that has a word for it, but like their tail appendage, there's a... Uh-huh. There, I, I don't know. I was counting on you guys to be the big knobby heads and, uh, and have, all, have all these terms and and and, and slang. Um, but well, so one thing. Yeah, I'm telling you, I'm right. I just googled it. Sorry, I'm right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, drop me a link so I can share that with the listeners who are wondering, who are casual fans of that. Sure. <laughs> who are wondering what scene, what nuance are they debating right now? Well, if you want to see Jake and Natiri really get it on, you got to check out the extended cut of Avatar. <laughs> I, I have seen that movie, but it was made by a different studio. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I had to go to a, a third party website, download it. Uh, <laughs> one thing, when so when I went back and watched um, Avatar 1 again, I, 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 do, I really don't know what uh, deleted scenes or whatever I might have missed. But I did like look up a couple of the deleted scenes um, because I was confused by one detail. The This kind of happens fast in Avatar 2. The beginning of the movie kind of catches us up to speed. It's 10 years later. Uh, Jake Sully and Natiri have a minivan uh, rides worth of, of kids. Um, they could start half of a baseball team. They The sky people are returning and uh, they all have to escape the Omatsukaya clan. They have to leave the forest. Well, not all the clan, but like Jake and his family have to leave the clan. Um, so they leave this other dude in charge. And I was like, oh, who's this dude? Uh, he must have been in the first movie. Well, I, I was trying to research it. In the first movie, there is a significant character who would fill this role, which is that guy. Uh, man, I had his name moments. Soutier? Soutier? Soutier, yeah. Soutier. Like yeah. Um, but he dies. Like, there, yeah. there's a, he has a really cool heroic death. But then I was like, oh, wait, maybe that wasn't him because he comes back in the second one. No. So I guess first question, who is the new chief of the Omatakaya in Avatar 2 for $100? Who, what is the name of the, the new chief? Uh, no one knows. It's just some uh, rando. Is no, it something from okay. the first that's, movie? That, that's Steve. Steve. <laughs> Steve, Steve Navi. Yeah. Okay. It was Navi. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Um, not, you know, you can't, I guess you can't really fault James Cameron for doing that, but like, uh, I think it also does point to one of the very few, one of the very few weaknesses of Avatar, which is like things like that. You have three and a half hours to tell your story and there's no buildup or no character development for um, this person who who should be significant, right? To this world, at least. Like, we should uh, feel the significance of I don't know about Jake that. Sully's passing this mantle to this particular person. Well, the significance person. is that Jake Sully's given up his title. The the, the yes. Whoever takes the title is not significant at all. So I don't mind not knowing who that is. Especially if it's not going to be important to the rest of the movie. I don't need to spend six minutes on Steve if Steve is not going to be important <laughs> right. at all. And there are like four more movies for Steve to become a relevant character. If, if he's he going to. to be relevant. Maybe right. not six minutes, but four, could we get 45 seconds? Could he get a name? He does get a name. He, in he, the does. Narration, yeah, he does. Jake says his name. Jake says, yeah. and his guy, he's going to be great. I'll give you both $100 <laughs> if you can tell me his name right now. No, of course I don't know I his can. name. <laughs> Uh, okay. yeah, he's, he's like, I'm, I gotta go, but Steve is strong. So everyone's going to be okay. <laughs> That's okay. basically what it is. Yeah. Honestly, I think I wanted to unpack that and get out of the way first. Cause I don't have a lot of nitpicks for this movie. I don't have a lot of criticism, honestly. Like I went into it loaded for bear. I was ready to 
tear this movie down. I was ready to find all these problems and and um, wow. So this is a real road to Damascus moment for you. (laughs) Yeah, I wanted to be proven right. I wanted to be proven right that my 10 year, my decade of skepticism, my side-eyeing avatar was correct. And honestly, I'm so happy that that watching the movie, it washed over me like a wave. And uh, and I had the complete opposite effect. Was it like a slow realization that you were into it? Or was there a moment where you were like, oh, this is for me? I'll tell you the moment. Uh, it's the moment I realized James Cameron still has respect for his audience. And it's when they're introducing the, the uh, Jake and Natiri have five kids at this point. They have like the kid that has the Lion King moment at the end of the first movie. Um, who's the oldest one. Mm-hmm. Uh, his name is Mateo. 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 <laughs> <laughs> uh, then they have Loak, who's the second oldest one. Then their third kid that they have together is Tuke. Mm-hmm. But then there's these two kids that they adopted, uh, which is Sigourney Weaver. Um, I'm sure Kitty. she has a name too. Kitty. Kitty. Mm-hmm. And uh, Spider. So Spider, Spider is, the, is the one, is the character. Um, they, spe- they don't spend a lot of time on this. They're like, we don't, you know, this was just a baby that was left behind. Oh my gosh. And now he's like this little Tarzan kid and he follows us around everywhere and he wants to be a Navi. And I'm like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, that's the that's the son of the villain from the first movie, and and the fact that they don't try to leave you wondering about that, they answer that very clearly. Mm-hmm. Like that's when I knew, okay, the audience this does this movie's not assuming that its audience is mm-hmm. stupid, yeah. and won't guess that right away. Yeah, that's a great call because it's just like literally he in a scene in a one of the classic James Cameron kind of clunky dialogue exposition scene where they're talking about their dads and he spider all of a sudden is like well maybe it's not so cool to know who your dad is and then the movie cuts to the villain and yeah. you're like oh great yeah that's what i thought he's his dad and then when they meet each other it's just like in the next scene that they see each other it's like yeah i am your dad like what's up let's get together you know mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, Avatar, it's funny you mentioned like Dark and 1899, because I feel like Avatar and in general, James Cameron's vibe is like almost antithetical to mystery box storytelling. Mm -hmm. Like he is not interested in like dangling something in front of the audience and letting the audience like wonder about what it might mean or how it might pay off. He like will show you a really disgusting bad guy. And the first thought you'll have is like, well, he's going to get squished. And then he gets squished and it's really satisfying. And like the whole movie is like that. Yeah, he doesn't, he's not, yeah, he's not trying to build a mystery for you to solve as the viewer. He's, he's building up a revel, uh, revelation or, or something for the characters. And he's letting you in on it before the characters find out the truth. Exactly. Yeah, you know? it's dramatic mm-hmm. irony in that way. Totally. It's, it's like, that moment in Alien where we see the egg opening up before any of the, the Marines do. And then by, one, by the time one of them sees it, it's too late and we're already excited for what's going to happen that's, to them. That's very true. He loves calling his shot. In this movie, I mean, the yeah. moment that he introduces the whale, what's his name? Pel- uh, Pelican? Or... Pelican. He's like, oh, this whale is not like the other whales. This whale is the murderer. You know, and he's just like, I'm calling my shot right now. This whale's going to kill some people in this movie. But the big, the biggest one, though, is in Titanic. He spends the whole 20, 20 minutes of the opening explaining how the Titanic sank, mm-hmm. telling you exactly how it happened, and then it just happens. And, it's, yeah. and it works. 
And the trick he pulls off there is you still spend three hours of that movie hoping it has a happy ending. Amazing, like, it's incredible. You know it doesn't. And, it, and, <laughs> it's and what's title. even better is that at the end, it does have a happy ending because he has that kind of flashback moment in the staircase, which is like incredible, you know? Mm-hmm. So so he loves having his cake and eating it too, calling his <laughs> shot. He just does whatever he wants. I think it's actually like fairly sophisticated in a weird way. I mean, it's something Hitchcock always used to do. It's like the idea, I mean, and you know, something people talk about in reference to Hitchcock all the time of like, if you actually want to create suspense on the, for the audience, you don't blow up a bomb. Suddenly you show them the bomb under the table and then have a five minute scene happen. Mm -hmm. And there is something really powerful, Mm -hmm. I think to like making the audience, not withholding information from the audience, but making the audience aware of what the stakes are of what could happen, what could go wrong. Um, And this whole movie is saying like, you know, the whole time what will happen if, you know, Stephen Lang's character catches up with people, you know, he'll burn it all down. And that's what he does. And I think that's part of why you experience dramatic stakes in in James Cameron's movies, because like you're always made aware from the jump what the stakes are. Mm. Well said. There is um, so. So, yeah. So the moment that they uh, answered the question of Spider's paternity and didn't dwell on it. Um, I relaxed more into the film. I was like, okay, great. They're not, you know, because also I was worried like, oh man, are they, are they trying to like do the, well, this is what you would obviously think, but it's going to be this whole other person. Uh, and that's going to completely surprise me. But no, they, they had um, three hours, three and a half hours to show us uh, whales and, and uh, jellyfish butterflies. And they wanted to spend as much time doing that as possible. So they got right to it. Yeah. Yeah. That's the other thing. The first hour of the movie is like all exposition, like getting, it's almost like when you come home from school and your mom is like, you can't do anything until you do all your homework. So you just like do it really quick. And that's kind of like what Cameron's <laughs> doing that first hour, right? He's doing all his math homework. Okay. I'm done. Let's hang out with some whales. <laughs> it does. It really does feel like a very unconventionally structured movie. Like if you wanted to, the exposition that happens in that first hour you know, kind of amounts to like they cloned Stephen Lang as an avatar and he's off to hunt Jake Sully. And as a result of that, Jake Sully needs to leave his clan and like seek refuge on the water. I mean, you could do that in 10 minutes if you wanted to. And mm. I'm not saying that I like I'm not saying I don't like the way they do it. I'm just saying you could do it much faster. And so I think there's something interesting to the fact that James Cameron's like, no, we're going to take a whole hour to like live with these people in this place before we actually get to what the movie's really about, which is them finding a, a new home, you know? Yeah, well, definitely there is a lot of probably stuff that he's setting up for the sequels as well. I think he knows what characters are important. He wants to spend some time in that first hour, kind of in that calling your shot kind of way. I think everyone who we see in that first hour for an, ex- an extended, like Steve, He's not important because we didn't spend any time with him. <laughs> but Falco, like Edie Falco, yeah. we have mm-hmm. like a couple scenes with her. That means she will be important later. You know, everyone right. I feel like who gets like a chunk of time there is because it's going to be important. So you think that's that's how you know like Steve is not going to show up in any of the sequels because because if so, he could have gotten the same amount of screen time Edie Falco did. Like they built her up to kind of not really go anywhere in this movie. Yeah. I think so. That's what we might guess. I mean, I'm not sure. Like, he could have been doing something else, but that's the impression that I get. Okay. Okay. I love the the bit of time that we do get to spend with Edie Falco. Um, the 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 mech suits that they use uh, are are it's such a cool design. Like, it's it's very similar to the loader from the Alien movies, 
um, mm-hmm. that, you know, uh, Ellen Ripley uses to, to literally kill the alien queen. Uh, and like, it's a, it's a more souped up, more advanced version. It's a military version of it rather than a space trucker version of it. Um, and I just, I love everything they do with it in both movies. Uh, the way that it's a direct parallel to the avatars themselves, right? The, um, you know, you have, you have only a handful of characters, uh, Jake, um, what's the doctor Sigourney Weaver's like doctor character from the first movie. And what's his name? Norm, right? Yeah, um, Norm mm-hmm. is the friend. The other you, we only really see like a handful of these people driving these avatars. Uh, but I like the parallels that they make about like, you know, you're getting into this biological body and piloting it while I'm getting into this like technological mechanical body and piloting it. But either way, it's making us, you know, six feet taller and augmenting our strength and agility and all that. Um and also makes it easier to drink coffee, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's one of my favorite things about the first movie is I feel like the first movie is really about bodies and really about like all the ways that getting into an avatar, or getting into a mech is this sort of realization of the self through the body. And, mm-hmm. you know, the the mech suits are like part of the reason they're connoted with the evil characters is because it's sort of the alienation from the body. It's like, well, this isn't my body. It's a body that I'm piloting. I'm just like the brain in the, in the cockpit. Mm -hmm. And whereas the avatar is like, well, this is literally your body. Like if it dies, you dies. Uh, It allows you to connect to nature. Um, And I think that all, again, you know, this just gets at like the core metaphors of the avatar world, Mm -hmm. which are like all about one with getting one with nature, you know? Yeah, that's for sure. I, I think we talked about this after the first time we saw it, right, A.B., that I think I said, if I, who absolutely love this movie, don't get me wrong, was going to say anything that I feel like I wanted more of, that I missed from the first Avatar to the second, is all of that stuff about yeah. bodies and, you know, because the whole, first movie is all about Jake Sully transporting his mind into this other body and, like, going back and forth and the dissonance of discovering this new world, this ability. Well, obviously, he's also in a wheelchair. So this ability to walk, the ability to be in this new world and to the possibility of becoming part of that world, which in the second one has already been achieved. So there's not so much of that body stuff. There is some interesting things. I think the most interesting is what they do with Spider and Stephen Lang, who has been reincarnated as an avatar. Mm-hmm. So... Now you have this guy who really hates the Navi, who is now in a Navi body, and his son who loves the Navi, but is stuck in a human body. That's kind of interesting, but they don't do that much yet with that. But yeah, that's kind of the only thing that I kind of wanted a little more of, that I feel like it's so good about the first Avatar. Yeah, I completely agree. There's that whole kind of thread about like Jake waking up as his Avatar and feeling like he's both dreaming but also waking up. And it's just this question of like, which is my real life? And losing track of that. I think mm-hmm. is like such an amazing metaphor for the experience of watching a movie like this. And for mm-hmm. the experience of, I'm just going to come out with my read for the movie, especially as you're seeing second time for the experience of doing uh, hard drugs, yeah, you know, totally. like when you are like high off your mind on mush- mushrooms, which may or may not have happened to me in the recent uh, past. Uh, you do have that experience of like, what is my real life of having entered mm-hmm. a new reality that is much better, that it's much more beautiful that connects you with the world and with nature and going back to your human life feels kind of shitty you know like you feel kind of like a sense of sadness which i think the first movie captures really really well and the second movie 
is really, um, I mean, it's a whole different thing, but I think in the second movie, because of doing that uh, setup, it allows for me to just go and revisit Pandora and be like, yeah, I remember this. I've been on this journey. I love this. I just want to hang out here, you know, like, and, and, and you're connected in a way that, um, I don't know. I mean, that's kind of my impression, especially if watching the second time was like, oh, this is a movie for someone who has been high on shrooms, uh, like high <laughs> on their minds on shrooms. This is this. If you have had that experience, then you get it. You don't you don't need to examine it or justify it. You're just like, yeah, yeah, that's this is what it is. You know, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. One of the one of the major criticisms that I, I would absolutely say, admit I used to agree with about the first Avatar is that it's it's just Pocahontas and there's not much more to it. There's no substance. It's like Pocahontas meets Fern Gully and that's it. Um, this movie opened my eyes to the fact that James Cameron really does have a lot more investment than that and is not so glib about creating this world and and borrowing from all the other pop culture that he has borrowed from i would say he's expanding on it like the fact that this movie the first movie it, it absolutely is pocahontas but then with this movie the way this movie makes it a little more sophisticated is we see how the different tribes look at each other differently right because it, it is all about like perspective and like shifting your perspective trying on the other person's shoes and, and walking a mile and seeing what it looks like from their from their eyes um but but in this movie we actually get to see like yeah the, the first one was all about the obvious differences between the technological humans and the nature focused nabi but now it's like well you got the omatakaya that ha that are a little bit different from the metakaina metakaina mm -hmm. Um, and they, the way they view each other and the way that they kind of criticize each other and, you know, don't understand each other. Yeah. I think it's about priorities. I think like James Cameron just doesn't really care that much about like plot. I think he's happy <laughs> to pull from Pocahontas or Ferngully or whatever, pull from wherever his influences are. If it like gives him the kind of mechanisms of story that allow him to like get at the vibes he's really interested in. Yeah. He said that recently, right? There was a video going around where he's talking. Did you see that, A.B.? Did um, he said something like that? He said literally that. He said like <laughs> something about like, the basically the, he's like a snippet from an interview which ends with him saying like, so that we don't have to worry about, you know, fake oh, concepts oh, 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 like yes, plot. Yes, yes, I did see him saying that. But did he say vibes? He said he like... No, 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 he didn't say oh, vibes. Okay. I, I don't like, think. Wow. But like he was talking about the how it less, yeah, yeah, yeah. how little I, he cares about plot. Right. And he, ah. well, he what he specifically said, he said that plot was arbitrary. And I think right. he's right about that, that like plot isn't what makes you fall. I mean, not this isn't necessarily broadly true, but plot is not generally what makes people fall in love with a story, fall in love with a movie. It's characters. I think I, I do broadly agree. Um, and I think I've reached kind of reached a point in like uh, like a consumer and creator of, of fiction that I agree with like the whole ethos that plot is is maybe the least important thing, because here like the truth I've I've under, I've come to understand is you're never going to come up with an original plot. Every single story comes down to um, a person had a strong emotion and wanted to do something about it. And so the plots are like, plots are always going to repeat. You know, there's only so many ways to, to tell a story about a murder or a, a spurned romance or wanting something and not getting it or wanting something and getting it. Like there's or only so many whale. of those that exist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it's the characters, like characters are what drive a story. Characters are what make you care about a world right. and a story and 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 what is the like who the ha plot is happening to. Right. Like any movie can have a space whale. 
but not mm-hmm. every movie has a space whale who was a composer of songs. Exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Kayakon, say his name. Give him oh, some no, no, that was the, no, that was that the, was the mother, other whale. The mother of the oh, mother you're of right. Uh, look, Pycon probably probably has, has written yeah. some. Yeah, he's written some tunes. <laughs> yeah, maybe not the same genre as his mom, like not yeah. the golden oldies, but you know, his stuff goes a little harder. Yeah. yeah. Well, he's an outcast, so he's probably like doing some underground stuff, you totally. know, that's like a little outside of the mainstream. I think it's all early 2000s trap music. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> while we're sharing our like, f- you know, few gripes, um, one I had after the first time we watched it. Um, was mm-hmm. about Stephen Lang's character. I think I struggled a little bit with the idea that, you know, now he, that he's in an avatar body, which in the context of this world is a body that gives you the ability to directly interface with mother nature. Mm-hmm. It like is an undeniable experience. You know, the moment he makes his bond with um, the, the Banshee, the, the Ikran, you'd have to think that like that would be a transformative experience where, oh my God, I've suddenly connected to this other being and we are like experiencing the world together. How does that not kind of transform everything you believe, especially if you're like an egotistical Marine like that? And I think I just struggled the first time with the fact that that didn't seem to happen. And mm-hmm. I do think the second time that it actually is happening, it's just slower. I think that my calling my shot I do think that the ultimate arc of Quaritch and some people who criticize Quaritch as like the main villain for the series, I think James Cameron's like interested in something a little, a little more complicated there. Mm-hmm. I think that a few movies from now we might see Quaritch fighting on the side of the Navi. That's what I think. I think so too. And I think that's why they introduced CD Falco in this movie as a way for Quaritch to eventually see himself in her character and realize like, oh, the, she represents all of the the way I used to be and the mistakes that I used to make before I had this experience. Mm. Um, Yeah. I, I do think that is a, it is hard. It's hard to wrap your mind around that. Like somebody could have this experience and not be completely and immediately changed. But Mm. AD, like, you know, can you name a politician who is (laughs) staunchly, uh, you know, a conservative and yet has a queer child and that has not, uh, yeah, totally. change them in any way you know i like, was gonna give a different example sure. like maybe what if elon musk does ayahuasca you know totally, I mean? totally. like, I don't think ah! he, he probably does that every day and it doesn't change him you know or mm-hmm. it does but it, it's that change is filtered through something different than you know yeah. whatever it is we're experiencing i definitely I mean, agree with you that i do want to see james cameron i hope he does something with it like he addresses that at yes. some point with the character yeah totally oh. I, go ahead yeah I was going to say, I think to your point, Conrado, about, you know, psychedelia, I feel like when people describe like a bad trip or whatever, there's something to a bad trip that is sort of the experience of like the loss of the self or like oneness with the world around you and experiencing that as discomfort, as like, oh, uh, this feels alien and hostile. And that's why a bad trip is like very frequently a, you know, product of like your own mindset and your setting Mm -hmm. rather than actually the drug itself. And I do think that, like, there's something there of maybe Quaritch is just, like, has the wrong mindset, man. And, like, yeah, he's tripping, but he just isn't really on the path to, like, see the truth because he's, like, fighting it so hard. But I think the whole point of those drugs when I've done them is, like, they're more powerful than I am, you know? Like, being a Navi is more powerful than than being a Marine, I think, at the end of the day. Um, they also make you realize that there are forces way more powerful than than you yeah that, fucking yeah. awa is more powerful than yeah. Ura, you know <laughs> <laughs> uh that's really well said yes. i i was rolling my eyes in the theater 
when it became clear, oh God, they're recycling the same villain from the first movie. Oh my God, they cl- why would they do this? Is it just, were, like, were they just so insistent on getting this actor back? But the more they were actually like doing something interesting with this clone of guy from the first movie, I was like, oh man, yeah, I, I'm really into this. I like that that moment when he acknowledges like that guy that is your dad, that's not actually me. Um, I was, you know, I came out of a test tube. And since that moment forward, I've been having my own experiences and whatever. But like all that memory shit is just like a file that was loaded up into me. It's not me. Um, and I like that he acknowledges that. And that that creates a lot of potential for that character to develop in exciting ways. Absolutely. Also, rewatching the first one, I, I said this before we started recording, maybe to you, but I, I want to say it on air. Like, I think Stephen Lang's performance is in the first Avatar is is James Cameron's best villain of any of his movies. I think mm. it's so good. Amy, I think you mentioned something similar, or at least that you really raved about Stephen Lang's performance when after you went to see the movie again this year when it was re-released, right? Yeah, totally. I think he's great. I think in part because he's so well contrasting with Jake Sully. Like, they're such incredible foils, these two Marines, and both using bodies in that way. I think, like, thematically it really works, and he just leans into that so well and, like, embodies the kind of egotism and, like, individuality of you know, the leader of like a troop of Marines so well, he's, he's really captivating. Mm. I also got to say, James Cameron doesn't necessarily strike like a great villain to me, except for the original Terminator. I think that's obviously mm. like the biggest one, you I know, mean, but, Billy's Zane and Titanic's pretty good. Yeah. yeah Billy Zane's kind of so. like a Gaston villain. Right. And I do yeah. still <laughs> think that like one of the funniest creative choices of all time is looking at the story of Titanic and saying like, you know, this needs a bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not enough that the, that the boat is sinking. We need someone to shoot at them at yeah. the same time. Well, because, you know, he doesn't want he doesn't want you to think of the iceberg as the villain. He doesn't want you to think of nature as the villain. So he's got to right. he's yeah, got to put a true. human villain in there. That's, that's right. That's right. I will yeah. say that that is one of my other small criticisms with this is if I go back and watch, um, you know, Alien or Aliens, uh, I can I can tell you something about each of these minor characters, each of these like space marines. You know, I could tell you a few things about Vasquez, or I could tell you a few things about Hudson. I couldn't name a single. I, I could tell you like one of these guys had wraparound sunglasses. The other one wore like a tactical vest the whole time he was a navy. But I really would have liked to come. You're away talking from about this. the villains. The villains. Yes, yes. I can like, tell you. Corch's I... like small entourage of. Yeah. of of Navi, the one, like I would have loved to be able to tell you something about them after watching the movie. The one wearing the like January sixth Oakleys, I can tell <laughs> you that one. <laughs> I can tell you that one's name. It's Lyle Wayne Fleet. Okay, um, and I can tell you that. <laughs> I can tell you that name because that character has become like a total meme online. Okay. I think there's some, and Corrado, I think we talked about this afterwards. We definitely but, did. Yeah, we I did. Think, yeah. What what he does so well is the seeing the Navi bodies, but with like fucking Oakley's or like a bubble gum and a mohawk or whatever. Uh, it's yep. so repulsive. You're like, what a perversion of this form to just like see a, like literally like a January 6th, the dude, but in that body. And I think yeah. it's like, it makes them so memorable. Like, I don't know all their names. You're right, Lou, but I remember all of them very, very clearly. I remember how I felt seeing that, which was absolute <laughs> disdain and disgust. I was like, I don't think I've been this more disgusted in the movie this year than seeing those fucking uglies. I mean, 
Oakley's on the ugly motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> their their design is great. I just I wanted a little more banter, I guess. I, between I hear them you. and yeah. Um, I can see it, that. What we it, do it get is a... banter between the children. Right. I I think yes. that that's where well, with the exception of older oldest sibling Latam, who has been made to die at the end of this movie. Sorry, yes. folks. Yeah. Uh, oh no! You say spoilers at the beginning, right, Lou? Of the podcast, yeah, of course. Yeah, so yeah. we're good. Um, yeah, except for him, all the other kids have very cool, memorable personalities, which Absolutely. I did not expect going in that I was going to be really into all the kids that were going to be in this movie. But I was pleasantly surprised. I mm-hmm. mean, the movie lives or dies by it, right? Like you yeah. have to give a shit about these kids. And I, I will say, I, I walked out of the theater. We were like, Conrado uh, and and Ab and I, we all saw it with a, a bunch of people. Um, the or well with Sasha I guess that's not a bunch of people (laughs) four of us went to go see it and I walked out of and I was I was saying I think I can challenge myself to name all five of those kids because they said each other's names enough enough like they developed them each each individually enough and that was actually easy like I could easily name all of them right Mm -hmm. after watching a movie tell you one or two things about each one and I appreciate that because I wasn't expecting to, especially in the first 10 minutes when they're like, yeah, we had all these kids, this stuff happened, blah, 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 data dump. Um, Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, no, this is, oh, they're fast forward. There's too many kids at the beginning. I thought there's too many kids. I said, like, it's too many. I'm not going to be able to keep track of all these kids. What's going on? But I did. And it Mm -hmm. was, uh, it worked. Yeah. And it does make you wonder, James Cameron himself has five kids. You Mm -hmm. just can't help but wonder which one of them he decided to kill off. Well, the oldest one. <laughs> right. But like, damn, that kid was really not memorable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, M- so Mateo, what are your favorite kids? Can Mateo. we have a little t- kid talk? Obviously, yeah, sure, Latam yeah. is, is the least uh, interesting, right? Because he doesn't really get much of a personality. He's kind of like the oldest brother. And he's kind of like the one who follows closest in his dad's footsteps. Yep. He's like the responsible one or whatever. He, he gets two moments of personality. Um, one mm-hmm. is uh, when he's protecting his sister. Yep. And, mm-hmm. you know, all those kids are like making fun of her like small tail and this and that. And he's and he like gets into a fight with them. Well, that's um, Loak who gets into the fight. And then Mateam joins. Yeah, but yes, yeah. So, okay, so I guess protective of younger siblings is one of his personality traits. The Mm -hmm. other moment was when they first get to the Matakaya, Matakia, I'm going to keep calling (laughs) it Matakia, and I know that that means butter. Matakaina. Matakaina, yeah. It's just the way that my brain, like, helped me. Honestly, (laughs) I think that's better than my brain, which is, like, a stupid fucking sponge of this shit, and I'm like, it's just taking up important real estate up there well um the other <laughs> moment is is when when uh sully and his family come to the metakaina 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 and there's that look between loak and the and the chief's daughter and yes. like oh clearly oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. there she gets was her, like babe coming out of the water moment there was like half of a <laughs> moment of the oldest son of of cliff curtis and um mateo and i was like oh okay maybe maybe they're gonna pair up too Mm. uh but they it was never explored it was mostly in my own mind my own headcanon so those are the only two moments that i would argue mateo had any character rest in peace mateo i do i have i want to say though his death seemed very effective for me absolutely i felt very sad I thought that mm-hmm. his whole thing of like I want to go home was very sad and very kind of like classic, realistic, you know, kid 
is about to die moment. Totally. And of course, it also helps that you have people reacting to like, you know. Zoe Saldana. Zoe Saldana is incredible at reacting at people dying. I feel yes. like she, mm. um, yeah, if you ever <laughs> I feel like I hope she's there when I die so she can like <laughs> make everyone feel sad about it. Yeah, her like grief shrieks are just really piercing and, and beautiful and haunting. Mm hmm. It it she she does such a great performance in both these movies of playing that like like the Navi have some animal characteristics like mm-hmm. they hiss when they're angry and mm-hmm. um you know like a lot about their faces is very cat like and their behavior is very cat like and she plays that up really well while also making this like a, a human feeling character totally um it's incredible so the next so the next kid is uh, Loak right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Loak. He's the kind of like the second son, so he's kind of the outcast, the one who's not living up to his dad's expectations and to his and you know the example of his older brother. And he's the one who befriends the whale. So yes. Loak is one that I have a little bit of back and forth about. Is he's not my favorite in in theory because I don't usually love that character of the kid who's like not living up to the parents and to the older brother or whatever. Maybe because I'm the older brother, maybe I don't really care about them as much. But I do love that he's the one who befriends the whale. And for that, I have affinity for him because mm-hmm. they end up doing something really cool with him, which is bringing a huge whale into the movie through him. It's also like, I feel I feel really conflicted about Loak because it is... It's easy, like it's, it feels easy to say it's his fault that Nateum gets killed. But the only reason that they were going back is for their other brother, Spider, um, who I feel like it's like, you know, if, they, if they're all serious about this, like, you know, Hana means family and family means no one left gets left behind, they really got to treat mm-hmm. Spider as though he's their brother and they would risk their lives for him. And they do. So I, I, I appreciate sense, that, like, yeah, that spider is is not been adopted by them at that point. He's just yeah. Like, I think you're right until the end of the movie, right? That's when kind of like when they're like, okay, spider lives with us now. Yeah, which but is very their friend. Obviously. He's their friend, and he hangs out. He lives in their tribe. Yeah, so basically family. So he's almost their their kid. They just haven't made it official until the end of this right. movie. Yeah, I think you know I agree with you, Conrado, that Loak as an archetype is not my favorite. But I feel like he has most of my favorite moments in the movie. Um, uh-huh. And I feel, well, first of all, I love how much he says, bro. I think it's so funny. <laughs> it is like, funny. Bro, bro, and cuz. Yeah, and cuz. Yeah. There's like, mm. I think there's a line where he's like, bro, that's crazy, cuz. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so that's good. But it's also, realistic. Yeah. It is realistic. Um, the climax of the movie, you know, with the parents are going to drown and it is the kids who have to come to their rescue because the kids have learned the way of water. Mm-hmm. Um, and Loak repeating the way of water to Jake and calming him down and getting him to breathe and then saving him and then Piacon saving them and Jake saying, I see you to Loak is like the moment of the movie that I think hits me most deeply. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a classic, like I'm proud of you son type of moment, mm-hmm. but it's, it's deeper because it's really like a moment for Jake Sully as a father to say, like, I have been projecting onto my son and thus missing who the person he actually is. And in this moment, he really sees him. Um, and also like Loak has, I don't know. It's just very beautiful. It's hard to put words to it. Yeah. I mean, I get what you're saying, 
I hear you say it also. Um, and it feels like, well, yeah, duh, AB, that's how movies work, you know. But I think the magic of it is that it pays off so well. And I think that goes back to the James Cameron thing of like something that it's obvious, right? Like you're setting up this archetype of the kid who is not living up to the dad. Obviously, there's going to be a moment towards the end of the movie where he finally lives up to that. But he just does it. He finds the perfect way to pay that off. You know, like, yeah, I think exactly. you're right. The mm -hmm. detail of the performance, of the moment, of him learn, teaching him to do the thing of relaxing, uh, which has been, which also is set up in a scene that is kind of like played a little bit for laughs. You know, when he's with the girl and he can't get his uh, his heart rate down because he's because he likes her, whatever. <laughs> yeah, you know, and then it pays off in a dramatic moment it's all very elegant you know like because yeah. it's it's kind of obvious that it's going to come but you kind of don't see it coming because it feels so connected to i don't know to the to the characters maybe like we were talking to the character beats yeah the movie um both movies do a great job of planting seeds that that sprout when you're not expecting them to sprout and it, and it has so much time to cultivate them and and let them you know i'm losing the metaphor but Um, but by the time they do pay off, you're like, oh, yeah, that's totally earned. They they absolutely laid every bit of groundwork to get here to this moment. Yeah, I mean, you're getting at a point um, in favor of long movies, I think, which is that. No, 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 90 minutes. This this movie could have been cut in half and I wouldn't be upset. Well, maybe that maybe so. But I do think there's something you can do in a three hour movie that you can't in a 90 minute movie. And whether this justifies the existence of three hour movies or not, I leave to the listener. But what you can do in a long movie is you can give the audience time to forget. And mm -hmm. you can introduce a seed, you can plant the seed like you're saying, and when it sprouts, an hour and a half, two hours might have passed. And that is enough time and enough stuff has happened that you're like, oh my God, I totally forgot about that seed. And I think that's often much more satisfying in a way that often um, comes with the sort of elegance Conrado is describing. Mm -hmm. I think that's something you can really only get in a longer movie. You know what it is also? It's, I think, the fact that it's being paid off in a scene that it's not all about that. Because, yeah. you you know, mm -hmm. like, so it doesn't feel as artificial or as predisposed because they're about to sink. This boat is like, the water's rising. Everybody, we are in a hurry to get the fuck out of there. There's a million other things going on. Like, it's the climax of the movie. So it feels like something that it's not so much, oh, he's paying off the arc as much of, like, You gotta get this dude to calm down so he can survive, you know? Like, so it is mm -hmm. very, it, it works because of that, too. Yeah. It's, it, it, he's actually doing double duty because um, the way that Kiri saves uh, everybody, like, she is, the, when when everybody else is training the way, in the way of water and learning how to um, ride their mounts and, and, and all of that and, like, fly into battle on these on these flying mounts, she is kind of busy kind of, you know, ooing and eyeing at all these bioluminescent <laughs> creatures. And everyone's making fun of her for just, like, staring at these holes and, and bubbles. And that pays off, too, because she's the one that swoops in with the jellyfish butterfly that lets you mm -hmm. breathe longer and, and saves Natiri with it. Yes. That's a great I mean, transition into Kiri, yeah. who mm. is the third child. And also maybe my favorite of the kids, sure. I, I mm -hmm. think. An unprecedented performance. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, we got to say, Weaver, like, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, explain Weaver, what this performance is. It's, okay, so the, the performance is Sigourney Weaver playing a teenage girl through mocap, but also the character is the daughter, or rather, in the first movie, they try to uh, bring Sigourney Weaver's consciousness from her human body to her avatar body, and they fail. However, in this movie, it's revealed that 
a month, you know, I don't know, weeks later, the, they discovered that the Avatar body was pregnant and the child who was born of that is Kiri. And so they mm -hmm. adopt Kiri, who is basically Sigourney Weaver's daughter with... The movie does a little bit, okay, here's a little bit of the paternity thing that they don't do with Stephen Lang. They kind of do here of like, oh, who might be Kira's dad when everybody knows in the audience that her she's she has Jesus. no dad. It's <laughs> she's Jesus. Her yeah. her dad is Awa, the Awa. spirit of the planet. So come on, let's let's get on with the planet. But however, what that means is that she's Jesus, which means that she is connected to Awa in a way that everyone else is even more so than everyone else, right? She kind of mm -hmm. like She doesn't even have to put her tail to it to be enchanted by like sand in the water or like this little floaties that go around or the grass. You know, she's like a Terrence Malick character like, rolling in the grass at one point. Um, it's very funny. But yeah, she's kind of like a she's a bit of a I guess I don't know if she's an outcast because her family sticks with her pretty much. But um, she does get some like you're saying, people make fun of her for that. Mm hmm. Yeah, she the, the first I if you I went back and rewatched the first movie and it makes it very clear uh in that moment when when the doctor is dying that her like whole consciousness is being uploaded to the Awa cloud. Um that is extremely clear. And like so that it, it like I I know that they're slowly revealing this whole Kiri thing and that in the next movie we're going to get more pieces of it, but it's Yeah, it's pretty clear like where they're going with it. Uh, but mm -hmm. again, for all the reasons that we said earlier, that's not a problem. Like that's not a bad thing. That's not a detractor about how they're building this character. Like it's okay that we know all totally. the pieces that they're putting together. So, and just to go back to the performance, which is I think what you were queuing me up for, AB. I do. I, it's an unprecedented performance, and I think it's an incredible performance yeah, from totally. Sigourney Weaver. I yeah. like like Oscar nomination it, or win, in my opinion. Like I, I don't know if I've seen a performance that great this year it's just like really transporting into like a teenage character it's really great i totally agree and i do think talking about like the psychedelia of the movie there is no moment in this movie more psychedelic than kiri face down in the water staring at the sand and the light <laughs> playing on the sand yeah um i mean it's absolutely like that movie i mean that moment transports me it's so mystical and you know what i love about this world is that Kiri, like you say, Kiri is more connected to the natural world than others. I feel like it's less like hierarchical than that. And it's more that she is like just better at listening. You know, everyone mm. is equally connected, but she mm. is not a warrior. She's, you know, she's studying under her grandmother at the beginning of the movie to be a healer. But it's all and she like already seems to have knowledge that her grandmother doesn't. She's like, try this plant instead of that plant. It stings right. less. You is know, CCH Pounder her grandmother. Is that that? Yes. Character? Yeah. OK. Um, and so there's just this sense of like, she, I mean, talk about vibes. Like she's just vibrating with Awa, you know, that's the grass, that's everything. Um, and it makes for a really compelling character. Uh, I just watched for the first time, um, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, um, the Miyazaki movie, uh, mm -hmm. which I think is a tremendous influence on a lot of things in particular Avatar, the last airbender. But I think also on this, I mean, there are images in that movie that like directly relate to, the bond of you know the tenderly bond um and then the character of nausicaa i think is uh very similar to kiri um so i wouldn't be surprised if james cameron james cameron had pulled from that but i think mm. there's something to a hero who isn't you know jake sully is a hero who speaks for the people and kiri is sort of the inverse of that kiri, kiri is a hero who listens um and that's always right. been like a preferred archetype of mine yeah that's a really good way to put it 
Uh, Definitely. And I think mm-hmm. I have a hunch that the next movie, which is supposed to be called Avatar the Seed Bearer, is going to mm. be like the Kiri movie. I feel like it's going to be oh, like, yeah. she's going to be like more central, even more central. Which so is interesting when you consider that it's Kiri who's on the, the poster for this movie. Yeah, I think part of it is just like, because she looks cool oh, really? and she has like a Sigourney Weaver face. <laughs> and like bangs. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Like she's the, she's like the main face on the poster. Well, yeah. the poster that is just one face is, yeah. is Kiri's face. Yeah. Oh, that is interesting. Okay. Yeah, she is arguably, um, like, uh, 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 Loak gets a lot of screen time and a lot yeah. of focus, but she is arguably the most important uh, character in this, in, in Pandora, in terms of, like, ensuring the future of the Heart Tree and or the of Awa or of Pandora itself, because it's all connected, the roots are all connected and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, and she can, like, weaponize Coral, you know? Yeah. Um, she, she and Spider kind of have like a little bit of a thing or at least like they, they see each other. I think, I don't know if it's romantic, but, um, they seem to be about the same age and they seem to like connect on a deeper level. Yeah. Which I think it's great, especially because she's played by Sigourney Weaver. So I think that's, um, levels of, um, awkwardness that I, that I always love in my movies (laughs) in my romances. Um, and then there's the youngest, the youngest is Took, right? Took, yeah, Took. Took, which is great. She's the youngest daughter. She's hilarious and she's cute in a way mm-hmm. that I feel like it's not too cute. Like they're trying to make her like something like adorable or something. She's just feels like a real girl to me. And, yeah, and I think she's really funny. And I love Took. Yeah. Yeah. She's very cute. She's not over like saccharine or, you know, anything like that. She's, she's really, she's a good character. Yeah. Um, there isn't much to do with a character that young, uh, but they pull it off. Like, yeah, she's good. <laughs> and and they, and they're good at making her be a kind of like that youngest child thing to be present and be kind of a little bit of like, oh no, too, because she's here, we have to protect her, or like she's a, she's got caught or whatever, in a way that doesn't feel too tacked on that they wouldn't hang out with Took or that, that she shouldn't be there. You know, like it makes sense, especially in this world that a kid that it's like, kind of like when you're in nature, you know, the, 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 the runt of the litter has to be out there because yep. if it's going to survive, it needs to learn the way of water. She also, her best moment is um, it's, it's kind of a meta moment and it's the second time she gets captured and they put the slap bracelet on her and she's like, again, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's really funny. And because it's... Cameron knows the audience, somebody in the audience is saying that too. They're like, really? Like, but she like, it's, it's like, a I smart move to get out in front again. of it. Yeah. It's so yeah. funny. <laughs> and it's great. Cause it's um not, you know, Lou, I know you're, you're much higher on the Marvel movies than, than I am at the moment, but I think that it's like a style of humor that is more very, very, it's all over the place in those movies. And yep. I think to James Cameron's credit, there's very, very little of that humor in this movie. Mm-hmm. And when that moment comes, it's not undercutting. It's kind of in reference. Like, it's like, like you're saying, it's actually where the audience's head is at. Whereas I think when a Marvel movie does that sort of humor, it's more often like undercutting where the audience's head is at. It's like something important has just happened, but let's make a joke. Something, you know, dreadful has just happened, but let's make a joke. Here it's like mm-hmm. something funny has just happened, so let's make a joke. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really rad. Yeah, I like Took. Um, Spider is the fifth kid. I guess, I guess you're right that he wasn't officially adopted by uh, 
Jake and um Thierry, which is kind of fucked up that they didn't adopt him. Well, Nathiri doesn't like him <laughs> from the beginning. Like yeah. Mm-hmm. He's like, I don't like humans. Maybe forgetting a little bit that her where her husband came from. But right? um, you know, uh those things, you know, prejudices exist. Most humans that she has ever interacted with have been only horrible to her and her lifestyle and her planet. So, you know, you can't blame her too much, I guess. Yeah, I can blame her, though, for um, uh, cutting this kid and threatening to kill him. Um, and then deciding to adopt him. <laughs> does she, though? Like, I, I was really laser focused on this. And I didn't watch it a second time. But from that moment forward, I was like, things are going to be awkward between this kid and the Tiri. Yeah. Is she going to get a moment? Are they going to do like a, that movie thing where she's like, I'm so sorry or like doesn't say it, but like sort of can't make eye contact with them. I don't think they put the two of them together on screen after that on purpose. No, um, yeah, definitely on purpose. It's very much like there's that moment where Jake Sully hugs Spider and the voiceover tells us like, you know, a son for a son. And the implication mm-hmm. is he's now part of the family. And I just love like the next scene, probably he comes home and I tear is like, what the fuck did you just do? Why did you say, <laughs> why did you tell this kid he's adopted when you didn't discuss this with me first? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I love Natiri in both these movies, but that's a moment that I really have trouble um wrapping my mind around. The the like the way she so easily decides to betray him, like after, yes, you know, being so instrumental in, in keeping him alive all of these years. I feel like she wanted to kill him for a long time and she finally saw an opening, you know? <laughs> um Spider, I think, is my, like, other than Pyacon, uh, Spider might be my favorite character in the movie. He is, um, the actor is doing a really cool performance. Like, it's it's very obviously Tarzan, um, mm-hmm. but... Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't want to, I don't mean this in a, in a bad way, Lou, but I am not surprised that this is your favorite character or one of your favorites mm-hmm. because he is the most 80s slash 90s character in the whole movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Loak is the, is the eighties, nineties character that like befriends the iron giant or, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. but right. spider is that like, you know, I want to have an adventure and I want to do what these cool Navi are doing. He's, he's the like one a, who would be like riding on a skateboard, you know, down Pandora totally. mountain or whatever. Yeah. Oh, he's a total <laughs> surf bro. Yeah. It's kind of a bummer that he doesn't get to like go to the water uh, tribe with everyone because you could tell he'd like really fit in. Yeah. <laughs> he, he will be there next uh, movie i assume yeah totally to ride in some waves i think he'll be good i'll think i think he'll like it i have a question about biology that i want to get into uh okay. the 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 avatars when they make the avatars in the first movie um so like norm and, and jake sully and the doctor uh they're designed to be as accurate like genetically accurate to being a Navi as possible to the point where like it is proven in the movie that they could, they can breed children, with yeah. a Navi. They can have children. Like they are that good of a replica of that biological species. Um, mm-hmm. So if you're that good at making them, why make them with five fingers in the first place? Because what that ends up resulting in is like Jake and the kids all have five fingers and they like think of that as the other tri- tribes like look at that as a deformity or as like a sign that they're they have demon blood demon blood yeah um but why is my that a thing sense, in the first place why well, wouldn't they just make the avatars four-fingered 
That's an interesting question because humans do have five fingers. So I assume that there has to be something with what would you do with the, I don't know. Is it like for ease of comfort? Like, is it just much easier to handle tools if you have five fingers as a human? I don't think so. I think, well, I feel like the first movie kind of makes an implication that like in order to make these avatar bodies work, which is to say you need to like, match consciousness across these two bodies they are a genetic combination of navi and the human and -hmm. i think somewhere in that like genetic hybridization maybe there's just like polydactylism so five fingers is like it's such a dominant gene that yeah it just like ends up if they cut that one out then maybe the avatar just like doesn't work interesting that's my theory because I was thinking of like, my first thought was like, oh, maybe they did that to make the transition, you know, easier for yeah. the person piloting it. But I, I, you know, I could wear five finger gloves or I could wear mittens and my hand's going to get used to the mittens after a while. Like I can do something to limit yeah. my mm. individual dexterity of my fingers and I'll get used to it. But Lou, you just watched the first one. Is the Does the five finger thing, does that like play as big a role in the first one? Not a huge role, but when Sully shows up, um, when Natira brings him to the tribe for the first time, one somebody grabs his wrist and they hold it up and they're like, look, demon, whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, it does. Okay. Yeah. Because I just didn't remember it being so present. And in this one, it's like constant. It's not as big of a thing because in this movie, it's more of that thing I was referring to earlier of like, it's an opportunity to show, yes, these tribes, they're they're the native analog, like they're... You know, the they are, uh, objectively speaking, the victims of the sky people coming in and um, uh, inhabiting their land and, and trying to conquer them. But at the same time, they have human tendencies to be tribalist and like, you know, to to discriminate against each other over thing over genetic differences like their tails, their their extra finger, this and that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I just think it makes it a more sophisticated, complex world that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? I do love the differences between the the water Navi and the forest Navi mm-hmm. and how they're well, talking about genetics as well, right? The the people in the in the water, <laughs> they have like bigger tails, they have like stronger arms for swimming. Mm-hmm. And uh they're just generally I think we talked about this after. Thicker, They're yeah. just thicker. Yeah, the forest navy, which are very lanky. Yeah, yeah. It was the nice. um, the end and, of and the obviously first... they have different colored skin. It's like lighter, kind of more sea foam green. Mm-hmm. The end of the first Avatar. There's there's a a bit like where they're gearing up for that final battle and jake is like we're going to go to all of the tribes and we're going to get every navi and they actually they do show the metkaina for a moment but i guess i guess back in 2009 we didn't have the technology to give them a different shade of blue um you know Um, movies were totally different back then so (laughs) uh but yeah it that is it is great how um, all of those noticeable differences between the designs make perfect sense because of the environment that they are adapted to. Um, it's it's one of the very cool details that, again, gave me a lot of faith in, I want to see where James Cameron is going with all of this. I want to see this whole world that he's building up. Like he's doing navies such a... of all different colors. Give me mm-hmm. red navy, give me purple <laughs> navy, give me yellow navy. <laughs> yep. Uh, so that's all the kids. We talked about all the kids. Um, I got a technical question. Go ahead. So this is a bit of like a, a, a segue, but 
I'm curious if you guys watching this felt that you were seeing something or anything that you had never seen before. Because I feel like that's the promise of the movie in some ways. James Cameron has always kind of intended to be a visionary filmmaker who is changing movies, innovating with every new movie he makes. Did you experience that watching this? That's an interesting question. It definitely... You, I will tell you something. My experience watching this movie was unlike any other experience that I've had, not because necessarily I was seeing something I had never seen before, but I was having an experience that was different from... Like, this movie, when I watched it, was overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Like, it was it was hard for me to keep track of what was... of Not what was going on right in the moment, but I couldn't even begin to think of, like, what happened a couple scenes ago. I just had to live in the moment that I was in and I was kind of like transported really into this kind of like different world. And and that's why it felt so much like being high, because it was all about what was happening in the moment and in mm-hmm. the vibes. And I couldn't think too much because when you're high, I feel like if you start thinking, you're going to have a bad trip, you know, like you just want to like ride the wave as it were. And that's kind of the experience I had. That's interesting. I think I agree. I think I think 3D actually helps with that because like mm-hmm. the glasses sort of you know, shutter your vision a bit. And so the movie becomes like the only thing going on in your field of view. Um, and yeah. It's, it, yeah, it ends up being this more transporting experience. The 3D glasses also make it harder to look at anything but the screen, which mm-hmm. I think is a very smart move for a lot of reasons, like from a capitalist standpoint, but yeah. also just like from a storytelling standpoint, you want the audience to be looking at the screen the whole time. You don't want them to be distracted by their phones or, you know, whatever else. So it's a really just simple, effective way to to do that and get them looking in the literally the direction you want them to be looking at the whole time. Mm. I never felt the runtime of this movie, even though, you know, I have a lot of things to say about I, I firmly <laughs> believe I will die in this hill and the movie <laughs> needs to be longer than 90 minutes. Um, but uh in terms of seeing anything new or for the first time, Mm -hmm. I don't think so. I mean, I've never seen a Tukloon before, (laughs) but but I've seen giant whales on screen. um, And I've never seen, you know, a big, like a swimming pterodactyl, but uh, I've seen versions of creature, Mm -hmm. of alien creatures. I've never seen creatures that look this realistic. I've never Mm -hmm. seen an alien tribe that, looks like I'm actually watching a documentary about them Mm -hmm. rather than a movie where they are, um, you know, a fast, fast motion video renderings of characters. Like it's, 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 it's not the, it's not a new experience, but it's like, it feels new because it's the best version of this that I've ever seen. It's like, if you ever go to like a Ruth's Chris and you have like the, like a professionally made steak, and it's like, I've had steak before, but this is a whole new experience, you know? Totally. It also reminds me, I think we've all three of us have talked about this, that time in the late 90s and especially the early 2000s when CGI effects were just starting to get really big. And we kind of went to the movies expecting to see something new. Like, what the hell are mm-hmm. they doing next? You know, like mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings and like, I don't know, the Pirates of the Caribbean or whatever. It always felt like there was something new that they were pushing with the technology. I don't. I feel like we have come to the point where that CGI is so ubiquitous that it's hard to reach that point. But I will say in this movie, I did, my mind couldn't quite comprehend 
how great a job they were doing of integrating Spider into the yeah. everything that was happening. That mm. live action performance in this completely CG world. And AB, you commented on this, and that kind of made me think about this even more. I just cannot comprehend how good it is that he is in there, even though he was not there you know like it's just crazy <laughs> yeah i completely agree for me the biggest new thing well there are two but one is this like seamless integration of live action elements with cg elements it's like i mean that's been that's something people have been doing you know for 20 years or more but it it's it's like bog it boggles the mind in this movie mm -hmm. i mean there are shots of spider in the water with you know a navi nearby and like the water that means that like they filmed this guy in the water, but then this, the water with the Navi is CG water. And you're like, mm. how are those waves touching? <laughs> like, how are, how do I not, how is there not like a line where I'm like, oh, well, there's the really live action waves and then there's the CG waves. I mean, it is just some of the most complex integration and compositing I've ever seen. And to, to the point that you never think about it. Um, and then the second thing for me that felt really like, revelatory from a technical perspective was the high frame rate, which I am like, very proud and happy to say I'm super into I've mm. seen it before, but this movie like really sold me on it. I think like it just looks fantastic, especially uh, for slow motion. Um, you know, one of the we're in a we're in an era um, from a filmmaking side where more and more filmmakers have like a very superstitious attitude towards filmmaking technology. Um, it's very complicated, some of this stuff, and there's a lot of math and a lot of science. And I think a lot of people are intimidated by that. And it leads um companies uh to like manipulate consumers into believing that things like pixel count like pure resolution matter more than anything else um and one of the best things about the high frame rate for me is how much apparent resolution you gain from more frames like the movie literally looks light like sharper and clearer because your brain is seeing more images more frequently and mm. That is part of why, like, I felt like I was there. I felt like I was looking at an aquarium. I mean, that was the projector wasn't suddenly at a higher resolution, but it sure felt like it, uh, and that was really powerful. Well, I think there's like two schools of thought on that. There's the Christopher Nolan's of the world that, like, you know, film is film, and it should be filmed on film, and and it should be showed in, um, you know, forty forty four millimeter or whatever, like. Uh, the not or whatever. What is it? What a um, sixty-five or seventy? Yeah, sixty-five. Yeah, sixty-five millimeter. Um, and then you have like, but imagine if Christopher Nolan got to make those decisions for everybody, we wouldn't have Avatar two because totally. James Cameron, from what I understand, like has invented new techniques of of filmmaking for this. So I guess like all of the new things that I saw, I would I didn't notice because they were so seamless and so well done. It's like it's like when you have a really great soundtrack and you don't notice it. Yeah. It just Hmm. is part of the immersion and, and the experience didn't yeah. he do like with the high frame rate something where like he would film a, a scene and then use a higher frame rate camera to film that footage or something like oh, it's it's absolutely insane i can't wrap my mind around how he did this stuff but, but yeah. Is, yeah. Uh, yeah i don't know uh i definitely noticed it and i do think that it works very well in especially in the underwater scenes as well. And, I, you know, I am, I had to be honest, I am one of those people who thinks that it looks a little bit like a video game and I don't love that, maybe because I'm not a video game person in general. But I do think that something that I really do believe is that there hasn't been as much 
creating digital images that look like digital images or that don't look like film. You know, like when we started to have digital, there's been a big rush to make it look like film or as mm -hmm. close to film as possible. And I don't think that sometimes it works well, but I feel like it's hard. Most of the time it doesn't. Most of the time the digital images doesn't don't look really good to me. So I do enjoy when someone goes in a very digital direction and to create images that look like something else, something different. Yes. Mm -hmm. Than like what do you get with film? Because you're because you're not really going to compete compete with film. Like I, I go to see an old movie in a 35 millimeter print that is all scratched up and looks like shit, and it still looks incredible because it just has mm -hmm. its own texture. Totally, I completely agree um, about people leaning into digital. I think what the, the 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 real decision there that is important for me is just authorship of the image. I think that like digital is really a blank slate. And that's where, that's why so many people have been doing film emulation because we know that film looks good. But that I don't, what I am a little more agnostic though in the sense that I don't believe that film is the only thing that looks good. I think that, you know, the chemists at Kodak had a hundred years to figure out how to make like a really beautiful texture and color and light on their film stock. We are very early in, in digital image um, technology And I think that it's really important that filmmakers like James Cameron are pushing that technology and trying out new things. I mean, the whole like 24, the frame rate thing is really bog, you know, baffling to me because I just think that there's no reason scientifically that like 24 frames per second should be the most cinematic frame rate. Like what is that? It's just mm -hmm. the one we've been used to for the last hundred years. So uh, yeah, I'm just down to see more new things in general. And I think that You're right, Conrado, like they will be uncomfortable. They will remind us of things like mm -hmm. video games or soap operas where we've seen higher frame rates before. But I, I do I, think, though, that there's something about the material element of it versus digital that will always, I will always, I haven't been able to shake off just yet. I mean, I watched Gremlins 2 the other night and just watching the puppet of like Gizmo the yeah. Gremlin, it was just something of like, Avatar 2, as incredible as much as I love it, it's just not competing with the puppet because right. it's a real yeah. puppet that exists, you know? Like, I don't know. Yeah, I tweeted about this the other day. I think there's, like, something about the alchemy of live action, of practical effects. This idea of, like, uh, in the tweet I referenced in Star Wars The Phantom Menace during the pod racing sequences, the the whole crowd is, pop, you know, this was before, or they just didn't do CG crowds at this point. So the entire crowds in the stands are populated by like Q-tips that have like painted tops. Um, and it's a wonderful, wonderful effect and it works really well. And there's something so immediately tangibly magical about that, that I think it's because I see Q-tips in my bathroom mm -hmm. and I'm like, wow. And that was the crowd in that pod racing scene. And I have the like ability to see the kind of raw material and then the like application of movie magic to it and the outcome Yeah, very clearly. You understand with, the magic trick. You understand the magic trick. That's right. And I think that that's missing with CG a lot of time because it's really, really complicated. You mm -hmm. know, James Cameron could describe to me very explicitly how they integrated Spider into some of these images, and I probably wouldn't understand it. And I think that to me doesn't diminish the quality of the effect. It just diminishes my ability to appreciate that alchemical quality, the yeah. idea of how magical yeah. it is. I think I've told this story on a previous podcast, but when I saw um, the second Planet of the Apes movie, it starts with uh, CG snow falling on the, the individual hairs of CG apes who are riding on CG horses in a CG forest. And my first thought was, how did they train those monkeys to ride those horses? <laughs> how did they pull this off? That's incredible. 
Like, and it took like five more seconds of thinking to be like, oh no, none of that is there. None of it. <laughs> um, but this movie did it to me too. Like this, yeah. I was like, so many times I'm like, there is not actually an ichthyosaurus. That is not an actual uh, uh, pterodactyl. Like mm-hmm. that they could, they didn't go and find a planet that has these animals on it yeah. and just take a camera down there and shoot them. They created everything, including the, the water that they're swimming through. <laughs> yeah. And I think that, you know, the more I've read about this movie and its process, the clearer it's become that like part of what makes it so special and why it looks so good is that James Cameron just has this respect for the integrity of the work of every department, you know, and of actors and performers. Like even the Tulkun, he hired like a troupe of water dancers to like perform as the whales, not I think one to one, not like recording their scenes, but just so he could like actually create that movement with an intelligence behind it rather than just an animator having to like create it whole cloth. Um, and now none of that is to say that the animators in this movie don't do a heroic job because they do. Um, mm-hmm. But I think there's a testament to how much thought is put into every part of this process, not just like the actual work, but how that work flows from one department into another. I mean, it's really like tremendous movie making. Um, and I mean, nobody's taking a decade to make a movie anymore or really. Yeah, ever. I was going to say that's why it took so long to do it. And what, that's why it's so hard to be able to get the resources to do it, right? Unless yeah. you have made the six highest grossing movies of all time in a row, it's going to be hard. Yeah, to, where are we at on the box office check. now with this thing? Oh, that's it's a good definitely, question. Enough, it's definitely enough doing well. That, enough that um, his his threat to make the next one the last one isn't really viable anymore. Like his, mm. cause he was saying, if this doesn't make, if the, if this doesn't make enough money, I'm willing to end it at the end of avatar three. But I think it's made enough already that, um, the, the next four, the next three sequels are, are green. Wow. Yeah. And my understanding is that because this one has made, has cleared that threshold because they filmed this one and the third one simultaneously, the third one will be 100% profit. Mm. Which is, I think it's made over a billion by now. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, it's close to two billion. It's wow. like one Jeez. billion seven, uh, one point seven billion. I think that's I like mean, the highest yeah. gross since before COVID. Since Endgame. Uh, yeah, mm. probably right. Yeah, I mean, I want to really see the international, the worldwide. Let me see. Never bet against James. Cameron. So hard to know. Do you feel like Lou? Do you feel like that's like a self fulfilling prophecy at this point? Never bet against James Cameron. Yeah, like he it's kind of over after a certain point you're like how many times can this person like make the most expensive movie ever made and then make the most money ever you know okay so i'm looking at james cameron's imdb page right now because i i feel like i can confidently say i've seen every single movie that he's directed so let me just fact check myself on that like real quick mm-hmm. okay let me introduce while you do that i'll go into the box office report so Great. avatar the way of water right now is the seventh highest grossing movie of all time wow. worldwide behind spider-man no way in home avengers infinity war star wars force awakens titanic avengers endgame and avatar so spider-man no way home has made more money as of right now but avatar will probably pass it i mean it's spider-man is 1.9 avatar is at 1.76 billion so i think it's probably gonna pass that at least yeah that's uh, amazing Literally every single movie, um, including Piranha 2. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, it's I I I have always liked every single James Cameron movie I've seen. I've always said, wow, that was the best uh, you know, robot uh murder movie. 
that was the best alien movie I've ever seen. That was the best, even Strange Days. Like, that's one of the most interesting vampire movies. Um, Wait, Strange Days, is Strange Days the movie I'm thinking of? Strange Days is the Ray Fiennes, Angela Bassett sci-fi. Sci-fi. It's it's sort of vampires, right? No, that's near dark. That's near dark. Oh, that's near dark. Okay, I was thinking of totally. What's Strange Days? Former cop, street hustler, a conspiracy... Strange Days is kind of like a Matrixy, like video VR crime, which I have not thing. seen, by the way. So, got it. I need to rewatch Strange Days, but the the, <laughs> the point is, um, yes, I have never felt like I've never felt, with maybe the exception of Piranha Two, uh, that there this is a bad James Cameron movie, or this is a bad movie for any reason uh, mm. when it was made by James Cameron. So I was I was foolish forever doubting. Um, that <laughs> Avatar The Way of Water would be bad. Also, he's done, you know, he's done sequels and he's done a great job with sequels before. So, yes, I am eating a lot of crow um, and I deserve to. <laughs> um, well, speaking of uh, eating st- things that start with uh, ka sounds like krill, mm-hmm. for example, let's talk about those whales. The tulkun? Yeah, let's talk about the tulkun. Um they're characters in their own right in this movie. They can speak. They can compose songs. Mm. Um, they have culture. They have a they culture. They can kill, but they will not. They will except not. Except for one of them. Yes. Which means he's probably full outcast at this point. You know? Oh, yeah, for sure. But I have know, a lot of problems with that philosophy, but yeah. You have problems with the Tulkun way? Uh, in a huge way, yeah. Because they don't even allow for self-defense as like as a justification and no they're absolutists they're total pacifists yeah yeah but like to the to 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 the point of just accepting your species extinction when you could do when you could prevent it well lewis if you had a brain as developed as the tolkun brain which is supposed (laughs) to be like a million times the human brain or whatever it is they say then maybe we could be able to grasp it but of course as lowly humans we cannot you know, to, uh, to use your own me. words against you, though, I, <laughs> if I was that advanced and that smart, and I, I could see myself arriving at this is the best way to live, even on this you know Pandora planet mm-hmm. where there's the chaos of nature, until the sky people show up, and then you have new information, you have a new factor to to put into your equations. You know, well, listen, sure. maybe they will change their way in one of the later sequels. I, I hope mm-hmm. they don't actually, because I think a couple things. One. Death on this planet is, you know, means something different than on ours where, mm-hmm. well, or maybe it doesn't actually, but they return to Ewa. And so it's not like, you know, death is not some great evil. I think their extinction in this like violent wailing way is. But um, I'm reminded of uh, what the Dalai Lama once said about self-immolation, which is that as an act of protest, it's altruistic because someone who, you know, sets himself on fire like could have decided to strap a bomb to their chest and didn't. And I think there's something that it, something protest like in the Tulkun accepting, you know, the whaling industry and not fighting back. It's, it's a real condemnation of the whalers in a way. It totally is. But if they were just, we see death in especially a lot in the first movie. And like, you know, that when you die, you, you're some part of your consciousness, some part of the memories that you had get uploaded into the AWA cloud. And then other people can plug into that and literally like relive experiences, relive memories, because mm-hmm. you had the opportunity to do that. The the Tulkun are getting hunted by um, uh, d- d- 
uh, what's his name from uh, Game of Thrones. Um, uh, oh, I don't know. But I know, we know who he is. He's the whaler. Yeah, guy. and to the point where, like, they're ta- what they're taking from them is those memories. They're taking that, their mm. brain fluid yeah. and right. and everything that makes them what they are as an individual. Um, because it, you know, it stops, it stops aging, man. Just stops it. Just, uh, one of the best blind deliveries, (laughs) but he, um, so that's what they're taking from them. If they were just killing them and then, you know, they were floating up into their particles were floating and and returning to the planet. Yes. Continue with this pacifist life. Let yourselves be killed because you're not, it's not a permanent annihilation. Yeah. But again, this new, this sky people species are showing up this new factor, this new threat. Like you got it. You got to take a different angle. You got no, to take right. a different I, I failed to, to consider the, the sucking out of the wrong. brain juice. <laughs> um, I think that, you know, their brain juice is being harvested for human immortality, um, mm-hmm. which is really perverse. And well, if, go ahead, go ahead. Finish. Please. Just if there's a whale revolution, you know, right. I, I'll, I might support it. The problem with the whales is they're adopting the classically flawed mentality of when they go low, we go high. They think that they can beat the humans and with shame, like shaming them. But the humans have no shame because we humans mm. are disgusting. We only want one thing and it is brain whale juice. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, I just I think that um, did, did they. OK, did they. I guess I'm just mad at them because PyCon's my boy and they kicked him out. And I <laughs> PyCon, I I'm not joking, is my favorite character in this movie. When they made it clear that, like you said, AB, these 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 have culture, they have society, they have conver- literal conversations with the with the Metzkaina, um, you know, t- talking about their family, celebrate each other's families' births and, and all of this. Um, it made it so much better for me that it's not just the you, oh you're this giant thing that we can only sort of understand each other no we can have a full conversation i can tell you exactly what i'm thinking and feeling and exactly what you don't have to extrapolate or fill in details and i think that that is again like giving the audience a lot more respect um in a, in a weird way <laughs> but uh but okay but for the tulkun society to outcast this guy they're basically sens- sensing him to death, aren't they? They're, you know, because can a Tulkun just survive on its own? Does it need its people to live? Well, this one's surviving. Yeah. What is strange to me is that they outcasted him when they do have this ability to, like, make the bond and see his memories, which once Loak does, he's like, oh, shit, he didn't even do anything wrong. Well, he did. Well, but then, then they say that the, the Tulkun, you're right, I, I forgot, that they say that the Tulkun did know that. Well, but also, yeah, they did, yeah. I don't. I'm not sure how the Tulkun would get inside his mouth and connect well, with. Well, like a little, you know, <laughs> it would be like a mouth to mouth contact. Little, yeah, a little kiss. They kiss. Um, yeah, they but no, kiss, they said the Tulkun like, didn't know, and that he right exactly. But he was he was guilty by like just being there by you know. Well, by killing at all because you're not supposed to, no matter what happens, right? Well, they said it was self defense, right? And he was like, "That's not." And allowed. He was like, yeah. "That doesn't matter." Right. Right. Yeah. Totally. Um. No, it's, you know, I, I got to respect uh, some some hardline pacifists, though. I think it's pretty rad. All right. I think it could be a little foolish of them, but, you know, I respect it. I think I, I'm with you on that, A.B. Yeah. Uh, so I've referred to a couple of the creatures as, like, like swimming pterodactyls or, like, 
the they they have a name for like the mount that looks like a like an ichthyosaurus, like the um like the flying fish the flying fish one that's really yeah. cool yeah uh okay in general is it fair to say that this movie has um dinosaurs in it <laughs> Uh, I think that the flying banshees, the ikran, the flying crocodile-looking thing, those are dinosaurs to me. I think that's the concept. Mm-hmm. How have you decided to find dinosaurs on this podcast, Lou? I think we have talked about this a while uh, ago. I always throw that question back to my guests. How would you define, what is it? what does the term dinosaur mean to you? A.B., do you have something? Yeah, um, first of all, I'll just say, I think that the Avatar series probably is the most robots versus dinosaurs film series ever made. Mm-hmm. And I think I would define a dinosaur as a cool creature. <laughs> <laughs> but but it has to be a reptile-ish creature, right? Like King Kong's not a dinosaur. That's true. So yeah, a cool creature that's kind of reptilian or, okay. bird, or bird-like. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would absolutely count a lot of these creatures as, especially because we don't know how long Pandora has been a planet, probably as long, if not longer than Earth. Sure. Or like how, you know, how long it's had a, a, a uh, an, an ecosystem and yeah. a biosphere and all that. So, yeah, these things could be as old as the T-Rex sure. or the Brontosaurus, like on our planet. So I would also classify their like dolphin creatures that they swim around on as dinosaur-like. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah. Does this movie have robots in it? Hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, some really cool robots. So we talked a little bit about the loader, the me- the mech's exoskeletons. But those um, this this movie, we get some underwater robots, like those Crabs, crab baby. bots. Yeah. Which are such a cool design. Again, it's like it's not anything that I can point to and say like, oh, that's new. That's something I've never seen, you know, but it's. Just cool. Just the, execution. Just the coolest version of the execution. There it is. Okay, I have a question for you, Lou. Would you consider that the avatar bodies, by being an artificially created body that it serves to house intelligence, are those robots in the way that an AI body is a robot? <sighs> yes, because yes. Um, because, and this is why I think bringing Quaritch back for this movie is like, again, I rolled my eyes at it the first time, but I really, really like it as a, as a decision. The more I think about it, um, Jake in the first movie is a character that can be uploaded and, and unplugged from an avatar, you know, at any, whenever the situation calls for it by the end of it, though, he has to fully transfer his, all of his consciousness into the avatar body and he's able to do that mm-hmm. um the avatar body itself it needs it needs something driving it uh so it's actually well i guess that it's not really a robot in that sense um but then in the second movie you can upload a dead person's consciousness into it and create a whole entire new being right right so yeah man i'm kind of talking myself into a knot you Wait, how do you define a robot? You think that it's something that has a consciousness of their own? Does a robot need to have a consciousness of their own? So what I what I've kind of from doing this podcast for a couple of years, <laughs> the the where I'm at with that is um there's a difference between a robot and an AI. Right? Uh, like a robot is something that is programmed 
and follows that program. Um, and you might put some protocols into it where it can improvise and or or do what looks like improvisation, but is actually just following again a script and a protocol and a series of 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 commands in a particular order. Um, whereas an AI, an AI could be combined in a robot. An AI could be what's driving a robot, but they are two different things. And I think that mm. an avatar is a robot. Until it, yeah, until it has something uploaded that's driving it. Well, the avatar body then I think is a robot because it is programmed to be an avatar body. It will continue, it will behave like an avatar, like a Navi body would once it gets activated and it needs the AI with the consciousness to get inside for it to awaken and actually be able to move. But when once it awakens, it will behave like it has been programmed to behave. It will not behave like a human, like when if jake sully's brain is in it it will behave like a navi it will have the physical attributes of a navi right yes yes but the body without something uploaded into it doesn't have any personality any right it's it's not on it's like yeah yeah. it's like the exosuit oh so you think that that's the difference that the robot would have something even if the ai AI is not in there the distinction is like a droid from star wars right like r2d2 doesn't have people programming him at this point anymore. Like somebody built him and and programmed him, but he developed his own personality over time. And R2D2 has personality quirks and and like clear likes and dislikes, thing orders that he will follow and that he won't that he will refuse to follow, you know? So I don't think I get the difference, honestly. <laughs> I think what it is is that there there needs to be like there is no Robot, robot is is too broad of a term, and you need to have all of these subcategories. You need to have all of these distinctions, like a droid versus, uh, and then a cyborg is a whole other thing. Because arguably, I would actually say that our avatars are closer to being like a cyborg than anything ah, else, I or like an android. Well, no, because an android doesn't necessarily have any biological components to it, mm. which is kind of the, the point of them is that they could. Be the, is that they're usually entirely synthetic. A cyborg, cool. by definition, is a combination, a combination of right? sure. technology and organic. Then yeah, they're deaf cyborgs. Yeah, these uh, spider bots are cool though, right? Oh, they're amazing. <laughs> Those are great. I also like the the little spiders that the, the ones that are like building the city. Mm-hmm. All these great little they're like these. Ebi Falco's like these robots can build a building in six days or whatever. Right. Nitpicky question about Evie Falco. It, yeah. Okay, so you're so they show her in her exosuit. She's like hitting a heavy bag, right? Yeah, to work yeah, out. Yeah. Um that that is a cool moment just because it made me think about like how weird would that be? Because you're not feeling the physical impact of the bag that you're hitting, like the thing that you're operating is actually hitting it, and then you're getting the resistance in a different part of your body of whatever but when she's drinking the coffee (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i probably am thinking too much about this no i thought about it too (laughs) wouldn't her hand technically be in the way if she's moving her hand to her mouth to get the the exosuit hand to bring the coffee to her mouth wouldn't her actual hand be in the way of the coffee mug well i'll caveat sorry go ahead i just think you forget that the that the 
mechanical hand is much bigger than the human hand. So I think probably a smaller movement in the human hand it, it equals a larger movement in the mechanical hand. So mm-hmm. you can go around it that way. Yeah. Okay. And I'll just say I've only piloted a mech like that a couple times. And when <laughs> I did it, I was drinking a tea, not a coffee. And I don't know if that makes it different, but it worked fine. Huge difference. <laughs> yeah. Because you gotta you gotta grab the like tea bag and steep You're it. Right, you know, right, you got you right. need a lot of dexterity for that. That's true. I, I love that like sipping coffee is kind of a shorthand for this is an evil character in the yep. Avatar world. <laughs> Which I heard someone say it's kind of cool because you know, coffee is a is a product that we take from like, you know, uh the global south or whatever. You know, mm-hmm. it's like a colonial thing that like fueled colonies for a long time, you know. Look at that. Just like just like the cigarettes. Also, there's a lot of smoking from the humans in yeah. these movies, I think. <laughs> I mean, and then Jermaine Clemens' character is like, that's why I drink. A lot of vice, you know? Mm. <laughs> uh, awesome. I, yeah, we've said a lot about Avatar. Um, I have three really big questions. I always do my big three questions. But before we get to those, do y'all have any other uh, um, topics that we've missed or any other things about the movie that you want to dive into? Uh, I think I'm good for big three. I think we, I mean, we said we love this movie, right? Yeah, good movie. <laughs> pretty good. Yeah, pretty good. Uh, I, I, oh, 9.5 out of 10, I'd say. I have, I have one more question. Kind of following our whole technical thing, I am curious, you know, one of the things James Cameron has talked about is like, he feels that in today's day and age where people are more and more watching movies at home, he feels a responsibility in making movies for the big screen. that You have to make it worth it for people to go to the theater. And mm. so the two, my two part question is one, did he make it worth it for you to go to the theater? And two, what do you say to people who might only watch this movie at home? Conrad, you want to go first? I definitely made it worth it for me to go to the theater. I would say that what I would say to people, well, what I would say first is to go back to when I was talking about my experience watching it, because I do think that it was unlike anything else. And it was very, I don't know how dependent maybe when I watch this movie at home, I will, I will see, but I feel like that being in the theater, like we talked about the 3d glasses, not being able to turn, whatever the big screen made it. So, um, to people who are going to watch this at home is like, I'm sure you're going to have a good time because it's a good movie. And I feel like I, if I watched it at home, I would have a good time with it as mm-hmm. well. You might not have the same experience that I did, but like, you know, that's on you for not going out to see it in the theater. <laughs> Yeah, I think that um, I would regret if I missed the opportunity to see this on a big screen. Mm-hmm. I I feel like I would have, uh, I, I, I felt an urgency to see it before it leaves theaters, and I'm really glad that I did. Um, it's a movie that I like, I like to see the big movies that are part of the cultural conversation, and this was, so this is one that was unavoidable for me. But, I, you know, at this point now, I'm, like, really excited for Avatar 3, which I never thought I'd say out loud. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I'll say this. I had the opportunity to see this in 4DX, the the one with, like, the moving seats. And I I thought, absolutely not. This would be (laughs) – that that might ruin the experience of it. Yeah, I think Um, that's right. But when I rewatched the first Avatar for the first time in over a decade, I had only seen it in the theater. Mm. I really enjoyed watching it at home. I'm glad Mm. that I was able to watch it at home. Mm. Um, It, I felt like I was paying attention to different things about it that I, I was completely ignoring the first time. Um, So yeah, I think I think think you should see this movie in the theater. I think it's absolutely worth every penny. 
Totally. I think for me, it comes down to something else James Cameron has talked about um, in relation to seeing things in the theater period is it's really less about like the big screen experience is amazing. The 3d, the high frame rate, all of that, I think makes it worthwhile just off the bat. But I think there's, he he says there's a social contract we sort of sign when we go to the movie theater Mm -hmm. where, you know, the movie's not going to pause because we have to go to the bathroom. It's not going to pause because we want to take a break. The movie's going to play and we're in this dark room with other people. And we're sort of just agreeing to be there on this movie's time, not our own. And I think for a movie like this, that is about how it's all bigger than us. I think there is something compelling to like being there on the movie's terms. Um, And that has been, I think for me, the reason I keep going back to the theater is I like that feeling of it not really being about me. Mm. Yeah. That's Mm -hmm. very well said. Yeah. And I think it does apply to this movie very much. So like you were saying it works, right? It, it, the movie is thematically about that. You're right. It's about surrendering to something else. Yeah. yeah. So if you watch it at home, my advice is just like, put it on, you know, don't watch it over the course of like four nights. Try to like actually sit through it. Yeah. Literally, literally churn your phone off, like eliminate yeah. as many distractions as possible. Um, and, and clear your schedule. Cause you got, you got to invest about four <laughs> hours into it. So, uh, all right. So, so, um, now it's time for Lose Big Three. Uh, Ryan, sing the theme song. Lose Big Three. Just you and me with Lose Big Three. Here we go. Thanks so much, Ryan. Nailed yeah. it. Love Every time. Wow. Right? You guys, he just lives in the studio and he just comes out and just belts the same notes every single yeah. time. It's amazing. Incredible restraint, not saying anything during this long conversation <laughs> we just had. Thank you, he Ryan, for being so He didn't even thoughtful. see it. Yeah, he didn't even see it. Uh <laughs> All right, so, to watch anything. so I'm sh- <laughs> he's only allowed to watch Marvel shows when Lou watched them. <laughs> Otherwise, he's stuck in the fridge or something in a closet. I should have made an actual list of the creatures, but I think you can name some of them. Um, the, the question is, mm-hmm. uh, the Navi in, in both movies, we show them connecting their hair appendage to uh uh Taruk Matai, what is it? Taruk Turuk. Turuk. Ikran. Ikran. Uh two the horses. The horses. Um the then butterfly the jellyfish. Mm-hmm. The uh the flying fish fighter ones and then the plesiosaurus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um if you're a navi and you have to pick just one of these mounts and that's the only one that you ever get to to bond with mm. what would you choose? I love that they don't have to choose, by the way. Like that's yeah. I love that they can just like they can have mul- multiple different mounts depending on like the situation or whatever. But yeah, but if you had for some reason had to choose. Huh. That's that's tough. Definitely it's a question of like, would you rather the water or the air, right? Kind of. Well, or the flying fish is kind of like in the middle of the of the two. Mm-hmm. Um, they kind of have to have their tails in the water while they're flying, you know. They're yeah, so you kind of go that high. I think I'm. I don't love heights, so I feel like I would love the the water creature. That it's kind of like what did you call it, Lou? The one that's like a dinosaur, but also like an orca. The it's like a plesiosaur. Yeah, I feel yeah. like that's my vibe because I love being in the water, and that sounds like it would be fun to like hang out in that. Like just you know. Splash around and whatnot. Mm. Maybe. Yeah, it's really tough because the the plesiosaurus one, which reminds me a lot of the Pokemon Lapras, 
Yes. Um, that's it's an amazing creature. They're so like friendly looking, and the ability to explore the water seems so cool. And you know, once you're under, it's basically like flying if you have this creature. So it's not like the experience of flight is gone. However, just in terms of like getting around, you know, commuting. It's, yeah, it's convenient. Like it's just to fly. <laughs> to fly flying is real nice. Um, do you feel like it would be too inconvenient to have the Taruk, like that the big flying one? Is that just like overkill? It's like driving like a Hummer or something. Yeah, I was gonna say it is kind of like that. Yeah. So I think an Ekron would be nice. An Ekron is cool. That's that's if I wasn't so bad with heights, I would like an Ekron. It is like the concept of it is really cool. Yeah. That's me. Uh, uh, so okay, it's a skim. One of them is called the skim wing. That's the flying fish-looking one, uh-huh. and then the plesiosaur-looking one is an elu. Mm. Um, elu, I like that. For me, it's between the elu or uh, the the butterfly jellyfish, which I don't I don't know its name, but oh, I just the think one that, that gives you water. the, the fact that you can breathe longer with it on your back, like that's I don't know, that's a cool concept to me. Definitely, <laughs> yeah, definitely. You could just swim, and it, I think it also helps you swim maybe a little bit, but it's just that. <laughs> but like, if you're on the elu, you you can you know you can do that breathing thing to so you can hold your breath longer, but the whole time you're holding your breath. Um, yeah, that's true. That's true. But I don't know. I think that's that's if I had to choose only one, I think it would be that uh, butterfly jellyfish. Lose big three number number two. Um, would you rather be? Uh, a human that can get plugged into an avatar, or would you rather be like a full recombinant? Oh, I see. Like, like, would I rather be Jake Sully in the first movie, or would I rather be Quaritch in or this Jake movie? Sully in the second movie, or Quaritch in the second movie? Yeah. <laughs> um, or what, what did you say the uh, Oakley's guy's name was? Uh, would you rather Lyle, be Lyle? Wayne Fleet. <laughs> Lyle Wayne Fleet. Um, <laughs> well, I assume that I'm living in Pandora. Uh, yes. Not in planet Earth, because that would be <laughs> terrible. Um, <laughs> if I was living in Pandora, I think I would go all the way, baby. I would go all in on the Navi lifestyle. Yeah. You'd be a five-fingered recombinant? I think so. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, what else do I have to do with my life? Wait, did the recombinants have five fingers also, or did they have? Did they make them with four because they're no, meant to be I think like anything infiltrators? That is, no, anything that is created by the, the human DNA, yeah, it has five fingers. I think. Oh, okay, because yeah. that's okay. Another small nitpick: they when Korich has his like team together, they're like, our job is to infiltrate. Or you know, I think Edie Falco tells them your job is to infiltrate, and you're supposed to you know, like mm-hmm. become one with the Navi, mm-hmm. but they chew their bubble gum and they wear their Oakleys and their tactics. At no point do they actually try to like sneak in and blend in with any um, no. Amatakaya tribe. No. But they set it up like that's what they were about to go do. Uh, do they? I, yeah, they do say that at some point. Well, no, it's, it's that when they're going into the Holy Mountains, there's like the immune response from Pandora to humans but mm-hmm. when they go like the wildlife itself will attack humans but they're able to like go into that territory without the wildlife attacking them oh okay. oh yeah i think you're right okay you're talking about the the hallelujah mountains the, the hallelujah floating mountains. mountains yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. Um, right because that, the, there's the yeah. point when they walk and the panthers come through and they right. like leave them alone because they're like oh they're just navi yeah, uh, okay okay you know what that makes i'm glad i asked because that makes a lot of sense and is not a contradiction like I thought it was. 
Um, I did also do a little bit of research about these, the Hallelujah Mountains. Mm. And there is like, there, it's not real science behind it, but there is, it's semi-explained in, in sort of like the Bible of Avatar's world and like the, that there's um, all of the trees create some sort of super, they're like, the planet acts like a superconductor and that the reason that the mountains float is because of electromagnetism and, you know, pseudoscience, but yeah, Yeah. but it's not just like magical floating mountains. Like there's, you know, space science behind it, (laughs) movie science (laughs) behind it, movie science, which I appreciate. Movie science. Um, All right. My answer. Oh, sorry. My answer would be with the caveat that I'd want a Metcayena body. Mm -hmm. That would be, I'd be an avatar. Like yeah, forward. that's that's a good call. Because if I'm gonna be riding around in the Elu, I want to have those like that big tail and shit. Yeah, and I just I don't want like there's something gross to me about like trading my body for like a tall person. You know, I'm like fuck that. Like, I don't even <laughs> so short can... kings only. Yeah, short kings only. All right, well, all Navi are taller than all of right, us. But I want to be one of the shorter Navi. You know what I mean? Oh, okay. I see. Yeah. Absolutely, I whole hundred percent agree. Like Metcaina for sure. That's yeah. if I had to, if I got to be like which one, and that leads me to lose big three number three. Um, what Avatar tribe do you want to see next? Mm. Uh, what uh, element do we want to explore? What element? Because <laughs> we had the forest slash sky people, and now we had the water people. So, what do you want to see in the next Avatar sequel? And what color do you think they'll be, or what shade of blue do you think they'll be? You know what. <laughs> In all honesty, I don't want to think about this because I don't, if I honestly, I would be heartbroken if I went to the next Avatar movie and it gave me something that I already thought about. I really want Mm, to be surprised and I want to like, to be like, oh, I wouldn't have thought of this, you know, or like, so I don't really would love to think about this too much. My first instinct was like, you know, some av- some Navi who live like in a volcano or like lava Navi or something. I don't mm-hmm. know if that would be a good idea at all. So I hope they don't do it. <laughs> I'd be interested in like Arctic, Antarctic Navi. Like I want to see like the ice people, you know? Oh, ice sounds mm. red. Yeah. Like what's the water tribe that lives like in Antarctica, you know? Yeah. Okay. That'd be interesting. Also like mountains. I'm just interested in like ice and like big mountainous. It would be interesting vibes. to see a different kind of terrain in like that's not so tropical in Pandora, right? Because right? everything has been like foresty. Even the water is like right by the forest, you know, the yeah. oceans. By the I do wonder if they'd ever go desert, but that's like very dune like. So, mm-hmm. yeah, de- desert is like the most logical thing because like you would think, okay, if this was a video game, um, mm-hmm. the next location would be the the volcano location. There would be red Navi there, and they'd have. They'd be adapted to lava for some reason. But, like, the version of that that makes more sense is desert people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I think, yeah, I, 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 your answer is also really interesting, Conrado, because the more I'm thinking about it, the less I want to think about it. I want to be surprised and I want to be, uh, I want James Cameron to come up with this and and show it to me and surprise me with it. Yes, I do have a fun one, though, and I apologize if this happens down the road and I've spoiled it. I think, like, <laughs> And like underground, like mole people, Navi mm. would be pretty sick. Subterranean Navi. That's kind of yeah. cool because they do have this glow in the dark, like dots yeah. in their body. So like a really glow in the dark Navi, that would be kind of cool. Yeah, it'd be really, really cool. They live in the mountains. They're like dwarves, you know. Mm, okay. Um, 
are the robots or the or the dinosaurs cooler in this movie? Who wins? Robots versus dinosaurs. Who wins? I think dinosaurs. I think the whole Avatar project is about dinosaurs kicking robots' ass in the sense that, you know, whales and 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 Ikran fighting against these mecha bodies. That's my take on it. Yeah, I think that's right. I think you know, it's a little tricky because it seems very clear that James Cameron like wants you to hate the robots. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, and right. they're often like gross or piloted by awful people. So my gut reaction is like robots bad. Um, but if I think about the robots, like irrespective of Lyle Wainfleet, I do think that like <laughs> they're, <laughs> they're pretty cool. Uh, but I do think the dinosaurs are cooler. Yeah. Yeah. There was a moment, I think AB, you pointed this out after we saw it in the theater, um, where Pyacon comes up he sort of beaches himself on the ship because uh, they're, you know, he's trying to save his friends, and um, Quaritch is about to gun him down, and he does this really smart move where he shows his belly because he knows that they know that's my vulnerable spot, so he shows it as a target, and then flips over to like his armored side uh, to absorb all the hits, and it's like it's such a little thing, it's such a little like quick moment. Um, but it says so much about the intelligence of these creatures and and uh, how, like, they're intelligent. It's not just they're huge and powerful. It's that they know how to use, like, if they were willing to fight, like, Pyacon, my boy, um, then they would know how to use tactics and and deception. And, like, it's just, it's it makes them so complex and so much more interesting than just, like, big whale, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Um, one last, one last bonus question. Uh, if we were to recast any two characters from Avatar The Way of Water with Whoopi Goldberg and Danny DeVito, what characters would they play and how would that improve the movie? Okay. I, I feel like this movie is perfect as it is. So I don't (laughs) want to like necessarily recast and definitely I don't want this person that I was going to mention to be left out of the movie. But I do think that in Avatar 3, maybe Edie Falco can get a couple like sidekick military people drinking coffee next to her that be DeVito and Goldberg. Like, you know, like the coalition is like coming together of like other generals or shit like that. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Well, that's a good call. What was um that actor uh, in the first one? Um, who was like the CEO dude? The, oh, Giovanni Rubisi. Yeah, oh, would be great at being yes. the new Rubisi. Exactly. You know, like, Ooh, yeah. Yes, I think that character. Like, I, I don't need Giovanni Rubisi back, although I think he did a fine job. But yeah, Devito in that role for sure. And well, then, he's aged in the time that happened between movies. So Rubisi has true. aged into Devito. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah, that's true. And then I think Whoopi. If we go with the like underground mole people Navi, I think she should be like the leader of that tribe. Okay. Yeah. I want to put uh Whoopi Goldberg as Steve, because then yes, because yes. then you <laughs> okay. know, like, oh, there's that's that's a you know, that that's either stunt casting or like that's gonna lend some significance to that character because it's Whoopi Goldberg. 
<laughs> but then you so, are like, you know what? They will. Well, actually, I don't know. I was going to say maybe they, you'd be like, oh, Whoopi's in charge. They'll be fine. But maybe it would not be fine if Whoopi's in charge. <laughs> actually, don't know. She's had some kooky opinions over the years. True. Yeah, that's true. I got a good um, part for Whoopi. I feel like she should be the first. Like, you know, clearly they're setting up like humans just immigrating en masse to Pandora. I mm-hmm. want her to be like the first like normal non-military like non-scientist person to be to show up there. The Vito and, and Whoopi just like got a condo a in Pandora. There. Yeah, exactly. They're a couple. <laughs> They're retiring in Pandora. That's right. That's the story. <laughs> Devito, I don't want to recast him, but Devito as Korich, like, I think I think that's a a completely different movie and one that I want to see. Um, it would make me go back to the theater and watch this again for sure. <laughs> Um, awesome. Well, I loved Avatar The Way of Water. Uh, I am super excited for Avatar 3, which doesn't even come out until next year, right? I think it's 2024. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Christmas 2024, I believe. Um, but I want to thank you, A.B. and Conrado, for uh, spending this time and talking to me about this movie, uh, for bringing me to see it in the first place. Um, and, you are and very welcome, Louis. The Way of Water has no beginning and no end, but sadly <laughs> we'll seeing these movies is. forever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, the, the, I'm going to say the only thing that I can say to close up this podcast, which is, Oel Nagati Kamiye, I see you. Cheers. Nothing, Conrado? No. <laughs> All right, we'll see you next time. Don't forget to like, review, uh, review and subscribe, and uh, send us some email at robosbdinos at gmail.com. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. So this is a real road to Damascus moment for you. Well, if you want to see Jake and Natiri really get it on, you got to check out the extended cut of Avatar. Yeah, <laughs> give the old nyuk nyuk. I think it's a delight. Now you're John Hammond. He's telling me to download a hoagie off the internet. But why would dinosaurs do this? That's an interesting question because humans do have five fingers. Awa is more powerful than Ura, you know? That's just crazy cool. We need people to write in with hate mail. Because they're tiny little eight people that don't know how to live in the world yet. What if Elon Musk does ayahuasca? Take that, you cocky bastard! I gotta go, but Steve is strong, so everyone's gonna be okay. Godzilla just sent a telepathic message.